0: Hello, this is Aaron Saft on the MR Running Pains podcast. With 30 years of running experience and 20 years of coaching, I thought it time to share with you things I've learned and people I've met so that you can try things for yourself and see if they help your running. Thanks for joining me.
1: Wrote this song while crew and Aaron on a 100 mile foot race through the trails in the rain and mud. How about that?
0: everybody. Today's guest is Dr. Aaron Vaughn, an MD in uh, family medicine and um, as well as sports medicine. Um, My last week's guest was um, Kyle Judkins, who is a DO um, in both the same uh, fields as Dr. Vaughn. And originally, we were going to kind of discuss... uh, some Some of the differences and, and nuances of each um and as well as just some some current things that are going on um medically um, that uh you know dr Vaughn could give us some some insight on uh but this podcast took a different direction uh and it was it was a great conversation I was really surprised by it um you know um, it's uh, uh it's about um what happens after covid for those that have it and try to get back to running what are we seeing what um what are the after effects of covid and how quickly should we get back to running you know what um <clears throat> what should we have done should we have any tests done you know is is there any limitations that people are finding um any dangers uh, so Really, uh, you know, it, it was a it was a great conversation. I really enjoyed. Uh, I always enjoy talking with Dr. Vaughn. Dr. Vaughn is personally my my physician. I see him as my uh, my primary care physician as well as my sports medicine physician. Um, he's a, a longtime friend. Um, you know, he's one of my athletes for a while uh, before. COVID happened and, and all the races were canceled. Uh, I, I don't know how he was doing everything he does. He's an um, amazing, amazing man, amazing doctor. Um, you know, he just does so much within our community and within the medical community. So um <clears throat> really pleased to have him on here. And uh, I want to thank him for sharing his knowledge. Um, you know, uh, so we touch on a few things, but um, the, com- the conversation really evolves into um, what happens post-COVID. So... I hope you enjoy the conversation and, um, you know, we'll, uh, we'll touch base at the end. Um, I've got, you know, some things at the end I want to kind of, uh, go over. So, um, yeah, but you know, well, right now we'll get into, uh, uh, our conversation with Dr. Aaron Vaughn. Enjoy. All right. Today, I'm welcoming uh, Dr. Aaron Vaughn, as I said in the intro. So, hello, Dr. Vaughn. How are you, sir?
2: I'm doing great, sir. We got Aaron squared today. So that's
0: right, A squared. Our, yeah. <laughs> <Aaron's in there. laughs> awesome. Um, so, uh, Aaron, uh, comes today, bringing the perspective of an MD. Um, uh, we spoke with Kyle Judkins on last week's podcast, uh, who was a DO, um, an osteopathic doctor. Um, so Dr. Vaughn is a allopathic doctor. Um, but do you want to describe differences perhaps in your, um, your formal training?
2: Yeah. You know, I, when I was, um, back in undergrad, looking at, you know, different medical schools, we had the opportunity of, you know, looking at schools that came from kind of the traditional allopathic approach, um, you know, versus the, you know, DO, osteopathic approach. And from a, you know, I think from like a primary care perspective, historically, um, you know, you know, both approaches, you know, I think were pretty well accepted. I think historically within some of the specialties and, and maybe even still today in some of like the, you know, the, the specialties, there's still a stigma associated with osteopathic providers. And I, and I don't understand that completely because, I mean, I think the medical knowledge that we attain, you know, through both, you know, pathways is is equivalent. I think, you know, the caliber of, you know, individuals coming through those programs is equivalent. I think the output on the other side, you know, in in terms of the education that you get is equivalent. There is kind of a different approach, I think, just in terms of, um, you know, osteopathic providers, I think getting a a more specific musculoskeletal, you know, education, you know, in, in terms of more of like a holistic approach, you know, to the body and how the different systems integrate, how they move. Um, and then the ability, just you know, to palpate or to feel, you know, the body through those different muscle, you know, and movement patterns, that I'm honestly quite jealous of. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think it's a it's a different hands-on approach in terms of, you know, that you know, laying that foundation for how you approach somebody. Um, that I've dabbled in a little bit, you know, since then in terms of like being around, you know, folks like Kyle. You know, Judkins, um, you know, some of my other students have come through our program um, who have had those skills and to, you know, kind of pick and choose when I have that opportunity to like learn from them, you know, in terms of how they approach things and their skill set. And I think we we complement each other really well. You know, I think we both kind of have our strengths through the education that we've had. Um, But I would say kind of like where we're at in terms of like our our basic knowledge, you know, coming out of med school and then going into residency is, is pretty similar.
0: We had talked about OMT with, with Kyle Mm -hmm. now, and that's kind of, you know, something that you're referring to there. Um, now with OMT as an MD, is that something that you could actually train in afterwards? Is that something? Yeah, we
2: can. And, you know, I, I mean, from like a, a billing standpoint, you know, which it's not all about that, you know, in any way, you know, it's um, all about like patient, patient centered, you know, approaches on you know therapies. But on a billing standpoint, like MDs can actually bill for that, you know, if you attain that skill, it would be like, you know, there's actually like specific fellowships, you know, and, and programs, usually a one to two year program where you can go and, you know, you know, obtain that, that license, so to speak, um, and that set. Um, there's certain things like cervical release techniques, um, and kind of traction, countertraction on muscle spasm that I will sometimes like employ in my practice, but, um, but I, I try not to do is, you, know, th- you know, things that I have not been trained in <laughs> ever. And, and so, um, so I, I can, you know, theoretically do it it's it's whether I should be doing it and um I, I don't because I haven't been trained in that but we can you know we can get that knowledge like right now I'm doing like a lifestyle medicine residency like I'm going through like that you know, online education just about a more holistic approach to patients outside of kind of traditional western medicine um, And within a year, you know, I'll be able to, you know, have some of those credentials, you know, to have that knowledge under my belt. So it would be something like that where you get extra training, you know, within your scope of
0: practice. Uh, Now, going back to your training, um, you started just like Kyle did as uh, family medicine as your primary education, correct? And then um, you did your residency through family medicine and then fellowship in sports medicine. Is that
2: That's correct. Yeah. So so those first four years of medical school, you you just kinda get like a fire hose. You have all this information, you know, that you're trying to pull. And in my first two years, every every school is like a little bit different. And they've actually, I mean, I guess I'm kind of dating myself, you know, being thirty eight right now, but you know, they've kind of changed some of the approach to the education now. But those first two years are mostly school, you know, classroom setting type education. Um, and then that third and fourth year, more your clinicals. Um, and so, you know, after you graduate from that four years, you get your medical degree or your osteopathic, you know, physician degree. And then, um, I did those three years in family medicine, you know, specific training. I did my training over at UVA in Charlottesville, which has some great trails around there for sure. Um, and then, uh, yeah, and then you you have the opportunity to do a primary care sports medicine fellowship in um, in sports medicine specific training. So more the non-operative approach to musculoskeletal health. Um, you know, from an operative standpoint, if you went through like a surgical um, you know residency as your as your background, you could do a orthopedic sports medicine fellowship, which is also one year. Um, and then they have other, I think you know, shoulder or hand fellowships, you know, it tends to be a little bit more specific for your particular joint. Um, But most fellowships tend to be one year. Now, saying that, there's been a movement within the academic community, you know, actually recently, and kind of we're currently going through that to expand our fellowships from one year to two year. I, I think all of us, you know, at the end of that fellowship, wish we had a little bit more time, you know, to learn, you know, more, um i mean you're never going to arrive quote unquote you know so sometimes it's you just got to get off the pot and go um but but i think there's like so much information coming out right now you know there's such a broad scope of practice between like ultrasound medicine and research and exercise fizz and you know lactate thresholds and vo2 testing and you know you know, injections and regenerative therapy and, you know, behavioral health. And I mean, there's so many, you know, avenues you can go down and how do you fit all that into, you know, 10 and a half months worth of education time? You know, you can't, (laughs) you really can't. So it's like, when is it good enough? But, you know, um, so there's a lot of movement there in terms of how training might change, you know, to meet the needs of, you know, patients when they're coming in the door.
0: Do you feel like the uh, continuing education um, helps supplement some of that stuff? You know, um, gives you a little bit more background and a little bit more um, training as to how to, you know, involve those therapies and. Um...
2: I think I think it does for sure. Um, you know, like I'm doing this lifestyle medicine, um, you know, curriculum right now, and and I think that'll really complement, you know, the education I've had in the past. Um, you know, I'm right now in the time of Corona, you know, we're doing all, you know, virtual education. And so I've, you know, done some specific training around, you know, COVID specific, you know, return to play and evaluation on that. Um, You know, I've I've taken some courses on ultrasound specifically around like smaller joints and things that, you know, I've seen, but haven't seen a lot of because it's rare. You know, I I think you can certainly, um, you know, fine tune some of your skills that you're interested in or where you need to. Um, but it is, it is hard. I mean, when you're, you know, seeing patients four to five times a day or, you know, four to five times a week, you know, and teaching, you know, to take the time that's needed to, to really, you know, immerse yourself in the amount of information you probably want to, like there's not the time right to do that so so i think if you have the opportunity to expand it to a two-year fellowship even though it's challenging to you know for like for me it's like revamp a program you know i I think it's probably worth the the effort you know to do it up front rather than when you're 10 or 15 years down the road and you know got kids or six chickens that you're trying to take care of and (laughs) you know fit it in then
0: right um So, um, you have an athletic background, uh, do you want to talk about that for a second? Like what, what was your, uh, growing up, what were you doing and what do you do now?
2: Yeah. I mean, I was like, I was a three sport athlete, you know, back in high school and football was kind of my primary sport of interest, but also, you know, played basketball up through my junior year and, you know, um, did track and field was kind of middle distance, you know, athlete. And then played college football for two years at division three level and really enjoyed that um, and then when I realized I wasn't going to be you know NFL athlete you know that probably was not my you know my preferred choice you know profession or like my god-given talent um I, you know went more towards you know the med school route um and I, and I think in the midst of that like what was accessible to me just in terms of time and activity was like getting out on trails and and running, um, instead of like, you know, putting on the pads and strapping it up on Saturdays. So, um, so I think like during residency, especially being around Charlottesville where you have just a lot of the beauty of the mountains, you know, kind of at your fingertips, I fell in love with, you know, trail running. Um, and have kind of, you know, continued that since I've gotten to Asheville. And and honestly, like, you know, one of the primary draws outside of the job, you know, was, you know, being five minutes from a trail, you know, no matter what direction you look. Uh, And I think those interests have, you know, just blossomed since I've been here. Um, You know, finding new trails, exploring, running, exercising. You know, I've, you know, gotten into mountain biking, you know, since I've been here. I never, know did that before so that's a new sport that you know three years in and a couple broken ribs you know i've (laughs) learned the hard way how to how to ride um so you know mostly you know kind of alternating between you know road and mountain rides and and mostly running you know is kind of my my interest right now
0: (laughs) um So I've mentioned you on previous episodes um, and to all the listeners, Dr. Vaughn is the one that helped me get to the line at Mont Blanc with no knee pain. Um, So having your experience as an athlete, um, how does that help you in your practice in understanding your patients that are athletes like yourself?
2: Yeah. Um, You know, I, you know, when I was back in residency, we, you know, we had so many things we were trying to learn, um, you know, m- managing people in the ICU on on ventilation equipment to, you know, teaching people, you know, how to get up out of a chair without, you know, hurting their back, you know, from like a geriatric population. And, and one of the things that really resonated with me was just working with athletes and, you know, my residency director at the time, you know, gave me a nice reminder. You know, on our way into work one day, that we're all athletes. You know, we're all trying to be active. You know, just at different levels. So you, you know, treat and approach people in the same way. And it starts, I think, with listening and and really understanding like where people's passions are, like where their goals are. And then I think timeline is the key um, in terms of what you bring to the table in terms of urgency and for some people you know they might have goals that are like a year out and then in other individuals you know their competition might be like tonight and so you know the way that you approach that is i think you know based on you know the level of competition or you know participation that people are at um, and matching that level of energy and intensity with with you know, what you provide in terms of intervention. Um, but I really think of it as, you know, we're, I, my, my goal, I think, is to always be clear with people just in terms of what I think that they have and, and you know, letting them know kind of where the extent of my knowledge begins and ends, um, providing them all the options that are there from an intervention standpoint, and then working together to make sure that we, you know, follow through on those things. Um, and so sometimes that might just be, you know, giving them a home exercise plan and showing them some of those exercises. And in other you know, ways, it might be, you know, doing PRP or regenerative medicine and like, you know, looking at injections or, you know, being, you know, very, you know, I would say quote unquote aggressive about like our approach um, in order to reach those goals. And, and to also know about what the risks are, you know, with those potential benefits. Um, you know, I remember, um, this is like back in fellowship, we had a, we had a soccer athlete that was looking at like an ankle injection and like, you know, we talked about like the risks and benefits, you know, is a procedure around the achilles and we talked about the potential of achilles rupture and this wasn't an injection i did but it was like you know within that training session and unfortunately like three months down the road like she ended up like rupturing her achilles you know she played and got through her competition and you know accomplished the goal that she wanted to accomplish at the time but like you know in retrospect you wonder like was that the best thing, you know, is that worth it? Um, and I think as long as like, you're honest with people up front about that, you know, about those potentials and, and, and don't leave people hanging, you know, you know, you're, you be there for them, regardless of the outcome. I, I think that, you know, kind of builds that therapeutic relationship that is necessary. Um, I think where people get in trouble is where they like overpromise or, you know, you know, say, hey, you're going to get better in a week. And when you don't get better in a week, like, people get upset. (laughs) They like to trust you. And, you know, if you don't talk about the risks and then you have a complication, like, you know, people get blindsided by that, ma'am, because that's not, that wasn't in the cards when we talked about it. So, um, so, yeah, I think just being honest and, and giving people time, you
0: know, to, you know, make sure that they're being heard is really important um, you and I have had a, a really good working relationship as a, a doctor patient. Um, and you know, how can others, um, look and seek and find someone that they feel they could, would be a good fit with? What are some suggestions you have?
2: Yeah. You know, Dr. Google can sometimes be helpful, <laughs> um, but you know, I, you know, a lot of people that find me, I would say, um, you know, do so by, by talking to people that they trust, you know, Um, I oftentimes, like, especially if it's a new patient, I'll ask them like, how did you, how'd you hear about me? I mean, we've got like outstanding providers like in our community, you know, that I work with, that I collaborate with, you know, Kyle Judkins being one of those folks, but I mean, there's, I mean, I can count, you know, I don't have enough hands and fingers to count the number of people like I consider to be close colleagues. And, you know, the people that come in to see me, they're like, "Oh, yeah, like I, I know so and so." And they know so and so. And like they said that you helped them like through their process. and um, and I, I trust their judgment. and so that's why I'm here. Um, you know, and I hear that, and that's like that's very flattering to me. Like I mean, I, I talked to somebody yesterday who just recently moved from Richmond, Virginia, and she's like, just so you know, like I had somebody that I worked with that like interviewed in your program four years ago. And one, you you didn't accept her to your program, <laughs> but like, <laughs> but um, she couldn't, you know, you know, speak highly, you know, you know, highly enough of like the experience that she had here. And, um, and, you know, that's, that's very humbling to me, you know, um, because that, you know, at the end of the day, like I, you know, it's, it's all about relationship and, you know, and how you interact with, with people. It's not necessarily the output or like, you know, the end point. It's what you do along the process. And and you kind of forget about it sometimes when you're in the weeds or like, you know, you're working late at night or you feel overworked or burned out. You know, when you hear these stories, like, you know, it, it, it makes you feel really good, you know, because you've kind of are starting to accomplish things that you set out to um but you know i think like saying that i mean you know ask the people that are closest to you or or people that like understand you like you know if if you're like you know a killer ultra distance trail runner you probably don't want to ask like a badminton player like Hey, who'd you go to for your, like, for your <laughs> like? I mean, it's just like apples and oranges. Like, you know, that person probably wants to see somebody that's really great with like overhead athletes and like tennis athletes and badminton
0: athletes,
2: you know. Um, so I think that the people around us in our circles, um, you know, it's a, is a really good first start. Um, you know, the way that Western medicine has kind of gone about, you know, their approach to medicine is I think tends to be very, very specialized. Um, and in some ways I think that's good. And then in other ways, I think it's a little bit risky because the more specialized you get, the less holistic you tend to get, not necessarily all the time, but you kind of get to know your niche and that's what you see. You know, if, um, if you go see a hip specialist, I mean like probably 80% to 90% of what that person sees is probably hips. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so that's, like, what they're thinking about. Um, but I, I would say that, like, within, like, the field of, like, primary care sports medicine, um, you know, we have that primary care base um, behind us. And so we have kind of the whole, you know, system approach, whether it be, like, you know, family medicine or internal medicine or physiatry or ER or peds um, tend to have, you know, that that good comprehensive background. But then we have like that niche on top of that, that you know, says, yeah, I can identify a meniscus tear, but I also like know like the surgical and non-surgical approaches to this and when to send you on to somebody else, like if things are not getting better. So I, I think there does tend to be maybe a higher level familiarity, you know, with those sports medicine specific type things within that field. And so, um, So most communities now, you know, and we're kind of getting to a saturation point within the specialty, you know, where a lot of communities have multiple primary care sports medicine folks. I mean, within Asheville, I mean, what are we at now? Like 110,000 people or 120,000, relatively smallish sized city. I mean, we have 10 to 15 primary care sports medicine providers within an hour, you know, of us that's a lot. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so you have a lot of, a lot of options. And I think that's a good, good first start, you know, is looking for somebody within that specialty, um, in terms of looking for, you know, maybe some higher level information. Cool.
0: If you don't mind me, uh, switching topics, uh, yeah. something that you had said earlier, kind of threw a, a light bulb on, um, you had talked about COVID. Um, mm-hmm. I have not heard a lot, um, and, and perhaps you have, of post-COVID. Um, what is uh, or are some of the effects that people are feeling um, in returning to their athletic endeavors? Um, you know, I've had um, one athlete that had COVID and um, heart rate um, seems to be elevated and seems to spike at random times. And it's, it's really difficult to bring that that heart rate back down. I've also heard of other athletes, and you can confirm if this has anything to do with it, is respiratory problems. Um, what are some of the things that we're hearing and, and seeing with uh, with return to athletics from COVID?
2: Yeah, you know, this is challenging. And, and there's, there's kind of two aspects of this. I think there's, you know, based on the severity of, you know, the virulence, you know, in terms of like the infection rate, um, you know, seemingly based off our early research here, you know, tends to affect people in terms of a higher mortality rate, you know, um, you know, more severity to this illness compared to the other flus, you know, um, that we've had in the past. Um, you know, I think there's more research and more following being done of people that are infected um as compared to other flus now i was you now saying that you know I, I sat in on a podcast this was like a month or two ago where they were looking at um the respiratory complications of just like regular flu or like rhinovirus and those individuals were more likely to have feature issues with their pulmonary function you know in terms of like fibrosis and scar and reactive airway disease and asthma, Um, I would say based on preliminary results um, with our COVID patients, we're seeing a higher um, likelihood of having cardiovascular and pulmonary issues in the future. Um, You know, the folks who sometimes are not even having severe like outward symptoms are having problems and complications in terms of scarring within the lungs, inflammation that's taking months to go down. Um, um, I led a journal club this week um, looking at some of the cardiovascular complications around around, uh, folks who have been infected by COVID. And I think, you know, what we're seeing right now just from like a NCAA, you know, big conference, you know, cancellations. A lot of those cancellations came after these reports. And um, what we saw was a a JAMA article um, specifically looking at the cardiovascular complications. And what they did was they, they took 100 patients and they followed those patients upwards of 90 days out. And they looked at their symptoms, you know, around anywhere from like 60 to 90 days and a lot of those individuals still had atypical chest pain so it's not like that crushing left-sided you know chest pain but it was more kind of I just don't feel right like it's just kind of this vague heaviness in my chest kind of feels weighted Um, a lot the majority of those patients still had atypical chest pain and they still felt malaise or they just felt like completely wasted and tired and And these are people, regardless of like what their initial symptoms were, some of these were like very minor, as we classify it, like, you know, minimal cough, you know, nasal congestion, you know, all the way up to folks who were like in the hospital intubated. So regardless of their initial presentation at 60 to 90 days out, the majority of them still had symptoms and 78%. So over three quarters of those individuals still had elevated heart enzymes on testing. And, and nearly the majority of those had abnormal heart MRIs showing active inflammation or scarring. And so it kind of freaked us all out. I mean, I I think it freaked out like, you know, hospital administrators to like athletic directors from like a compliance and liability standpoint to like us as physicians saying like, you know, we'd like to think there'd be a direct correlation between the severity of initial presentation, how that's going to look in three months or four months. And it really doesn't. So, you know, and then what does that mean? You know, if you've got like myocarditis or like inflammation of your heart, you know, we know there's poor outcomes associated with that. There's heart arrhythmias, there's abnormal heart rates, there's increased risk of sudden cardiac death, there's you know, future risk of potentially having, like, other heart-related issues that, you know, can shorten lifespans and quality of life. Um, Now, were we just not tracking, like, our regular flus or rhinoviruses and, you know, do some of those viruses have the same complications? I don't think we know that necessarily, you know, and if we checked at 92 days, if we checked at 95 days, would everything go away? Like, I, I think we also, like, don't know that either, um, but I think there's enough information there to say, you know, this is new information that we didn't know and we need to probably pivot here and not just say, hey, after two weeks, if you feel pretty good, like just go out and, and run again, you know. And um yeah, I think know, just made us pause. Yeah. Yeah, you know, made us pause and say, Hey, we probably need to, you know, do more evaluation before we just let people fly. Um mm-hmm. You know, just to make sure like our recommendations are not putting them at risk, maybe not acutely, but like in the long term. Um,
0: What do you think are some things that they could be screened for that would help them determine if they were able to return to athletic activity?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, being honest with yourself just about symptoms is really important. You know, I saw like a wrestler yesterday and, you know, he had COVID about six weeks prior and, you know, he felt great you know, so I, I think that's one reassuring sign, at least, you know, hoping that he's as honest with me as possible. But like, you know, I think, you know, being asymptomatic is is important. Um, you know, then, I, then I, think, I think there is some value in getting, you know, some pulmonary tests, especially for, you know, our longer distance athletes, you know, in terms of, even if we don't have, you know, baseline tests, I think it'd be helpful, you know, to have that information. And if they are having symptoms, I think that would be helpful just to see how people are functioning. Um, And then from like a cardiac standpoint here, that's where the debate is. So like, you know, does every single person that has COVID, what are we at like over 5 million now in in the country, (laughs) you know, does every single person get a cardiac MRI at, you know, a two to three grand pop, like it's not going to happen. It's not practical. So one of the things, and I talked to one of the cardiologists today over at Asheville Cardiology, you know, and, you know, their recommendation, you know, was, you know, people should have some type of screening. And, and I think, I think an EKG is reasonable, you know, looking for any type of heart arrhythmia, or you can look at those rhythms and assess kind of, you know, function of the heart or like, you know, how large the heart is. Um, so I think that would be reasonable and relatively cost-effective. One of the things they also looked at in that study, you know, that I think definitely requires more, you know, research into is there's a, a a lab called a troponin, which is a heart enzyme, and typically when folks have like acute heart attacks, you know, or muscle inflammation of the heart, that enzyme that's circulating the blood is high. And what they saw in, the, in at least the study was that there is a pretty direct correlation between that lab being elevated and folks that had active inflammation or scar in the heart. So can you extrapolate that and say, well, if I screen this person and they don't have this enzyme, you know, is their risk lower of actually having this inflammation? And can I say, to the best of my ability, this person is probably safe to return, I think that's a potential cost-effective and you know accessible way of at least deter- helping determine that risk um, of going back. So that's kind of how I've approached it: is asking patients like, "How do you feel?" You know, if you're having pulmonary issues, I, I think it's reasonable you know to look at the function of the lungs. And if you're having any type of cardiovascular issue, heart rate abnormalities, you know, exertional you know exercise intolerance probably a good idea to you know screen with some blood work and maybe an ekg before letting people go back
0: okay um, if you don't mind sticking to this topic for a second uh, i think uh, dr dr phil nye the science guy <laughs> yeah with, uh, um a statement um which i had heard previously um and, and you know it goes to that you know that that six feet rule but when we're cycling or running at a, a you know a higher velocity. Um, and anything that we project out, it's going to have that kind of jet stream, if you will, kind of that pullback. Um, so they're saying that, you know, that six feet is actually longer. Like when you're, if I was, if you were running, you know, and, and let's say potentially you had COVID and you're asymptomatic, but, and you, you know, yes, uh, you know, some air particles come out and that came back and I was coming up behind you if I'm, you know, coming in within range, I, I'm more susceptible. So is that, um, is that something you've heard or is that, you know, kind of hearsay? What do you, what do you think on that?
2: Yeah, I think that, I think that radius, you know, definitely increases, you know, with your increased, you know, kind of cardiovascular output. Um, I've been kind of telling, you know, the folks that, you know, I run with like in, in small groups, you know, less than 10, you know, it's typically just, Myself and my partner running, but like, you know, it's you know we're probably looking at like ten to fifteen feet, you know, probably double, you know, what um, you know we're recommending just for like daily you know interactions, walking around. Um, to my knowledge, they haven't like done that study. You know, I mean, I think a lot of us have seen like the sneezing study, like you know, covering your mouth with your hand versus a mask versus
0: you know, yeah, yeah
2: you know, full go without anything. Um and I think that's where some of that like six foot data came from. Um and then also like our airline industry as well. I think like that's, you know, some of that research has kind of you know affected some of our recommendations there. But from an active population, I would really, you know, tend to double that. Um, you know, ten to twelve, which is really it's really
0: hard to do. (laughs) Especially like, you know, heavily dense, um, uh, parks that, you know, I mean, it's everybody wants to get outside. Yeah. Uh, but you know, you go to your community park and it's just, it's packed full of people. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I guess, the, you know, kind of the recommendation there is to kind of choose what time you go, you know, for instance, uh, you know, don't go at the, the peak times. Um, if you see that it's really crowded, perhaps uh, perhaps seek another venue. Um, but, um, yeah, it's 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 difficult. I mean, uh, we're fortunate to have the trails, obviously, because you know, we don't we don't have as much interaction with other people. But um, for those in you know metropolitan areas, you know that, that are kind of st- stuck in smaller spaces, um, any guidelines? You know, anything that you know you would say go by. I mean, a lot of times they say the mask is is for kind of our uh, the protection of others. Um, but um, you know, does like a N95 mask does that? you know, potentially provide any protection for those running?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think to your point, like all masks are not created equal, you know, and, um, you know, our N95s tend to be, you know, better than, you know, the the cloth masks and the majority of folks. I mean, I think outside of like our medical providers, you know, have, you know, a tough time getting and acquiring like those N95s. And so, i think it would be a benefit you know if if people could get the highest quality of mass that they could um i think also like we've been looking at like eye protection there's been you know multiple studies looking at you know how the coronavirus infects people and you know there's certainly accounts of you know that occurring like through like the eyes and like that mucosal membrane and so Now at work, like we're we're always wearing face guards, face guards or glasses, and so yeah, I think if we're going to be in a dense area, it's probably a good idea, you know, to have some type of like protective goggle outside of just like normal eyewear, like for folks who have like visual impairment, um, you know, just to protect ourselves a little bit um, better. Um, I mean, it's it's, you know, I, I think it's 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 challenging you know to run with something over your face <laughs> you know really, i really i think it is i mean, I mean people some, some people do it like historically just to decrease some of the oxygen i mean i don't know if you've talked about that on some of your podcasts before in terms of we have, like, yeah. altitude training or like you know limiting some of that just to increase kind of your your tolerance and you know pulmonary function but um I think if you're going to be around people, it's probably a good idea, you know, to to wear a mask. And I mean, I've seen some folks even through some of the races through social media where they're trying to, you know, stage people in terms of their start times and things right. like that and recommending, you know, masks at the start and then once you get spread out, you know, go ahead and taking that off and, you know, how compliant are people with that and is that... You know, is that effective or not effective? Um, you know, I, I don't think we have that data yet, um, you know, but I would just be cautious. Um, you know, I was on the Wise Guys yesterday, you know, like local talk radio for sports, and they're asking me about the bubble, you know, that's going on right now within, you know, the NBA and the NHL. Um, and it seemingly is working pretty well. I mean, you had – Folks who are getting infected kind of at the out on the onset. Um, But we've been relatively clear, you know, in terms of the last like couple weeks. Um, And and what's been required to do that has been an incredible amount of resources in terms of testing people multiple times a week, up to like three times a week, Um, really limiting the in and outs. I mean, it truly is a bubble. I mean, you're talking millions upon millions of dollars um, to, you know, put on a show and entertainment and sport, you know, that the majority of people in the world like don't have access to, you know, in terms of that level of safety, you know, to group like that. So, it's not applicable, you know, to our like travel leagues and like our showcase tournaments for like wrestling and you know, basketball right now. So I, I, hesitate that people feel like they can create like that level of security, um, you know, without the resources, um, know, yeah, to
0: really do that. Um, uh, forgive me for harping on the, the subject, but no. I didn't really discuss this and i i I hear a lot of things and I want to just kind of, you know, determine what's hearsay and, and what's, you know, actual reality. But another article that I see, I saw recently was on the, um, uh, the, the neck gators, if you will, the, the buff style, um, mm-hmm. kind of the, the bandana style that you can kind of pull up, but it still covers your neck. And I was saying that, that it's actually more dangerous, um, because of all of the, the folds and stuff that it can trap more, um, uh, you know, is, is, uh, should we be steering away from that style of face covering, um, and just work, working with, you know, basically the, the nose and, and mouth mask, uh, have you heard anything along those lines?
2: Yeah, I've primarily been, you know, focusing on the things that cover the the nose and the mouth and rather than the buff, you know, kind of hood. I think one of the things that, you know, I've even like learned about is, you know, how many times do I touch the exterior part of my, my mask? And then if I adjust it, you know, back over my mouth or if I like take my mask off to drink a cup of coffee, you know, and put it right back on, you know, every time I remove that, you know, I should be like washing my hands, you know, and putting it back over my face. So like does a buff, you know, increase that where like all that stuff is kind of sitting, you know, on the exterior part of my, my, my protection or my mask. And then I'm readjusting and, you know, we know that, the coronavirus like you know sits like I mean it doesn't just like disappear right away I mean um, you know I I think anything that like you know that that doesn't fit as well or like you know that you're manipulating more probably increases your risk you know to like self-infect um, so I, I would be cautious with with those um, not, I mean I think something is better than probably nothing. Um, but, um, but I would probably gear more towards, you know, the ones that we're a little bit more familiar with in terms of like our, you know, standardized face coverings or N95s.
0: Those are just so accessible to the runners and it's, you know, just common to have those, especially when we go to races because they can be used in so many multiple ways. But, you know, I I just want to limit everybody's exposure. Um, so you know, it's, it's. I think I saw that in a uh, outdoor magazine. I think they had one of their um, online, um, you know, weekly newsletters that, that mm-hmm. had an article about that. I'll see if I can find that again. I'm gonna make a note about that. Um, you had also uh, just so I remember, you had referred to the JAMA article. Um mm-hmm. for those that don't know, is that the Journal of American Medic- Medical Association? What's JAMA stand for?
2: Yeah. Um. um. That is the, uh, I should just make sure I'm you
0: know,
2: <laughs> you know, saying this correctly, but yes, the uh, Journal of American Medical Association.
0: Yeah, Beth gets that one too, so uh, I see it <laughs> all the time. They always have a creepy picture on the front.
2: <laughs> a, lot, a lot of times it like ends up in my, you know, my mailbox and then into my recycling bin pretty quickly, but um, this was, I think, a pretty pertinent one.
0: Yeah, she always passes along the, the articles that she finds pertinent. But, um, yeah, she usually flips through pretty quickly and recycles. <laughs> cool. Um, anything else that we should touch on with uh, COVID? Uh, anything else that you can say preventative-wise or um, any, you know, any uh, knowledge that you can pass along and we'll wrap that part of us up.
2: Yeah, I think one of the things that's kind of come onto the scene is, you know, our accessibility to, you know, to testing and then, you know, what type of testing may be best in terms of, you know, truly ruling in or ruling out the disease. And right now, we're still not doing a lot of work with antibody testing, you know, just because we don't know, like, you know, if you've had it, like, can you get it again? Like, does it create immunity? Doesn't it? You know, what does it mean for you in the long term? Um, you know, kind of referring back to the bubble, um, you know, the you know, some Yale researchers actually started working on a saliva test, you know, that's um, that they've employed. And, you know, just based on their experience, um, you know, it seemingly is working, you know, so it's a quick test, it's not invasive, you know, it tends to be a lot cheaper, and so it could potentially be a lot more accessible. And if you're getting back results within like 24 hours, like, you know, theoretically could have a great impact you know if let's say like you know we were going to put on a race for 100 people you know and we test everybody at five to ten dollars a pop you know that's part of your entry fee like you know 24 to 48 hours in advance like theoretically could do whatever you want (laughs) you know as long as you created your bubble and um you know everybody would be safe um so, I mean, I think there's a lot of, you know, but you know, kind of guarded excitement about that, you know, instead of the tests that might take, you know, over 24 hours or five to seven days that tend to be really expensive and, you know, um, you know, hard to access. Um, I mean, looking at like the CDC rec- you know, recommendations, they're still not advocating for the saliva tests yet, you know, just because I think it's, you know, yet to completely be proven as much as like, you know, our brain tickler ones that a lot of people are using and, you know, some of the, the other swabs or, you know, um, cultures that are out there. But I would I would say kind of with guarded excitement, like that might be like our, our next wave, you know, just for testing that might provide us a little bit more opportunity to be active, um, you know, as we're kind of all putting hope out for a vaccine, you know, in terms of when that might come down the pipeline. So, um, I say that just to say that's kind of what we're we're looking at right now but yeah. outside of that like the recommendations really haven't changed a whole lot outside of like our you know, our distancing and mask wearing and you know hand washing and I would still probably you know advocate for you know being cautious with travel you know know where you're going and what the, that risk is associated with that so cool.
0: Now, Germany has decided to go forward with the mass vaccination, just with the current, right, uh, at the current state of whatever the, the vaccine is. Uh-huh. Um, have they begun to administer that? They haven't here. Um, is that what you're referring to internally? Your... Have they started administering in Germany?
2: I, I don't know. I, I don't know that. Um, I know there is talk, I can't remember if it was Germany or Russia, you know, where they were talking about um, – you know, moving forward with that. Um, and and I don't know that I should, I should, but I can look that up, but
0: yeah, that's fine. We're, we're we're recording on, uh, August 21st. So God knows what, by the time uh, August 27th, we could have.
2: It was kind of interesting and you can kind of liken it to, you know, some of the, you know, research around like the HIV, you know, crisis that was there. And, you know, I think there was a, a lot of like quick advancement in some of the medications around that because of the need and the morbidity, you know, in terms of like how much is affecting people regardless of whether or not they're dying or not. And, you know, people were willing to take that risk knowing that like we hadn't gone through kind of the standard phases of, you know, these drug developments. Um, and we might get to that same point where, you know, you say, like, to the best of our knowledge, this probably won't kill you, <laughs> you know, um, it's probably worth, you know, the risk of, like, having some minor complications around it, you know, for the good of the herd, you know, or, the, or people, which is a really challenging conversation to have just in terms of the morality around, you know, vaccines and who should get it and who should, you know, who shouldn't. Um, so not easy questions, you know, to answer, but um, sure. I'm not going to put any timelines on it at all, um, you know, because we've all kind of missed those <laughs> marks one way or another. But, you know, hopeful that, you know, we'll get there sooner than later.
0: So North Carolina, um, you know, Beth was just saying that she had an update from um, from her sources that the uh, the peak here in North Carolina is supposed to happen beginning of September. So, you know, within you know, seven to 10 days, we're supposed to hit our peak. Um, is it projected? Cause we didn't, I didn't get the chance to talk to her about it, but is it projected that, um, we could have a, a potential second peak, like they kind of talked about, um, going back into the winter when we get into kind of flu season, that's still a possibility. That's still a possibility.
2: Yeah. Um, you know, or it depends on how you describe it, but I would even argue for like a third peak cause I feel like we kind of, you know, hit that initially and then kind of nattered out and then we've had right. another.
0: Yeah, I get you. Yeah. So um, potentially going into a third peak yeah. beyond. Yeah.
2: Know. I mean, I think what was a little bit concerning was a lot concerning was, you know, what happened in New Zealand, you know, kind of everybody praised, you know, that country for being a hundred days free. And then, you know, they've had another, you know, wave. Um, Spain is in the midst of that right now. Um, I mean, I think what we saw with like UNC this week, you know, just in terms of a pretty aggressive trial, you know, of, you know, limiting exposure. And now they've got how many different clusters and hundreds of kids, you know, who have Corona. Um, it's challenging, you know, moving forward. I know it's like the weather gets cooler. People, you know, congregate, you know, a little bit more. And we know we're already going to have like a flu, you know, wave, you know, anyway. So I think we're all kind of expecting that, you know, Corona is probably going to pick up here as well. Um, you know, over the next month or so.
0: Fair enough. Fair enough. I hate to end on that note. (laughs) 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 Uh, I want to be respectful of your time too.
2: You know, Uh, I, I told, I told them that, you know, yesterday on the interview, um, you know, and, and I believe this wholeheartedly, you know, just about hope and, um, you know, whether it be for like racial or gender equity, um, you know, or you know, sexual equity, you know, or Corona. I mean, I don't think we're like trying to get back to normal. You know, we're trying to get back to better. And, you know, I, I think, you know, this process has shed light on, on so many aspects of like our culture and our people and, you know, our medical system and access to care you know, that I that I truthfully really hope that we learn from this and can make some good impacts for the future. It's, it's just tough right now because what's been done and done and the foundation's been led has created a lot of, you know, a lot of issues, you know, a lot of people that have died and a lot of people that have, you know, lost their jobs. And that's, and that's sad, um, you know, you know, just plainly said, that's, that's tragic and sad, but I'm hopeful that we can like pull together, you know, through this and, and work on better processes and learn from our past and in all aspects.
0: So. Absolutely. That's a, a good place to to wrap it up. I really, I do appreciate your time and uh, for going down that, that Avenue with me. Um, yeah. It was totally yeah. unexpected, and, <laughs> uh, but I appreciate your insight on that. And yeah. um, we'll, uh, We'll have to have another chat because we have uh, a lot of fun things, uh, a lot of uh, questions we had we had that we didn't get a chance to talk about. But
2: yeah, uh, plyometrics—we need to hit plyometrics. Yes.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Let's let's, let's do a whole lot
2: lot of other things. things.
0: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, Dr. Vaughn, once again, thank you for your time and for uh, for all your knowledge.
2: Yep, I I appreciate you having me on, and it's always fun to circle back with you. Thanks, buddy. All right.
0: So thank you, Dr. Vaughn, once again, for uh, for that conversation and for uh, your time and uh, and making time to, to come on and, and talk with me. Um, <clears throat> you know, on on other other notes, I want to uh, just express uh, my gratitude to um, to all those that have uh, that have left comments for the podcast, uh, have subscribed. Um, if you haven't do- done so, please go ahead and, and do so um, you know a few things coming up we've got my newsletter coming out for September so if you would um, jump on over to mrrunningpains.com and subscribe to the newsletter um, that would be fantastic uh, the other um, other really immediate thing is uh, this Saturday which um, is August uh, 29th uh, we are having our trail work day. So, if you're in Western North Carolina, um, yeah, you can see on my Mr. Running Pains coaching Facebook page events. Uh, there is a trail work day this Saturday at 8 a.m. at Turkey Pen Trailhead. We'll be uh, hiking into the Wagon Wheel Gap Trail and doing some some much needed work. That trail has not been touched in a number of years, and it's, it's high time that somebody gets in there. So, we're we're going to get in there and and get to work. So. Um, if you're free, love to have you out. I'm going to run beforehand. So, you know, if you're worried about getting your run in, just get out there early. Great place to run really beautiful forest, uh, lots of Creek crossings and stuff. So if it's warm, it's, it's a great place to, to go run. Um, so hopefully you can come out Saturday, uh, stay tuned for other work days that are coming out throughout the fall. We have a number of trails to work on, uh, throughout Western North Carolina. So stay tuned for that. And, um, I appreciate all those that come out this Saturday. Thank you. Um, other things that are going on: um, my uh, coaching services. Um, we are. Uh, I've got a few athletes that will be kind of wrapping up their uh, their training cycle and uh, and taking a break. Um, you know, for a while, um, they, they're getting through their gold events and, and want to take a break. So, I will have some spots open. So, if you're looking uh, to get going and want to know what's, what you should do for 2021. Um, great time to reach out. We can, we can start building that aerobic base, kind of get through a few phases and then recycle you back into, um, you know, some easy, um, aerobic miles again, before we build you up for your goal event. So good time to reach out, even if you just want to hold a spot. Um, I do have some people that are holding spots for, um, for the future. So, um, reach out if you would running pains at gmail.com. Um, and let's see what else is coming up. Um, I've got my, uh, rotten egg event at my house. Um, rotten egg. It's, uh, it's on the trails at my house, which, uh, I'm not completely finished with, so I don't have an accurate measurement on, but the way a rotten egg race works is you, uh, send in a seed time and, um, you know, it's it's kind of by uh, invitation so um if you're interested in in checking out the event um just email me and um and you know I'll I'll put you on the list of uh of people that that want to get involved and I'll send out acceptance letters um but anyhow what what I do is I have you do a mile time trial just to kind of see where you're at and that will place you in a heat based on others that have your similar ability um for seed time And then um, each heat will run the loop. And then the last person that comes in in each heat is out. They are the rotten egg. So then we'll continue to run um, heats uh, until there's two people left in each heat. And we run one more loop. And the winner is the winner of the, the rotten egg races. So... Um, that's coming up my birthday weekend, October seventeenth. Going to be a fun event. So again, if you're interested, uh, email me. It's a it's a it's a pretty tough trail. A lot of up and down, um, some switchbacks and stuff like that. So, uh, but it's going to be pretty fun. Uh, the lap should be somewhere between, I would say, uh, a kilometer and a mile, depending on how I lay things out. Um, so you know, and then there'll probably be about ten people in each heat. So figure on uh, nine heats uh, to uh, to get to the the winner of each, of each heat. So, um, I hope, uh, it sounds fun, something different, you know, um, and anyhow, that's, uh, that's going to be for October. Excited about that. Um, and, um, I just saw that, um, the, um, the naturalist, which is, uh, even further west towards Franklin, North Carolina, um, they are hosting their naturalist, Uh, Races both the 25k And the 50k virtually Uh, You have a certain time frame to do it Um, But they are Donating their proceeds to um, Those that help uh, maintain the Bartram Trail out there, which is really cool. So um, it's a if you haven't seen that race, it goes out to Wyabold, Bald, which is a beautiful, beautiful area. Um, yeah, the 25K is a point-to-point, and I believe the 50K is an out-and-back. So double-check that, but it's on Ultra Sign-Up. You can check it out. Uh, guys at Outdoor 76 do a great job. Uh, so just want to get that out there. Um, as well as the shut-in is now virtual. They have their window as to when you can run. Uh, the the shut-in to get credit for running it. Um, But yeah, uh, shut-in has gone virtual as well, and that is on Ultra Sign-Up as well. So um, some cool races out here in Western North Carolina going on. Um, I'll try to keep you posted as I hear more. Um, I haven't heard um, what's going on with um, Brandon Thrower's Tentlaw Ventures races. Uh, I need to follow up and see. So next time I'll I'll try to have an update on those. Uh, Hopefully there's something going on with the... uh, um, looking Glass 50 miler that's a, It's an awesome course So uh, I'll keep you posted on anything that's happening here If you guys hear anything Want to uh, send me an update That's fantastic And um, really thank you guys for you know, Being a part and, and listening Thank you for your time uh, I hope you learned something today And uh, again any suggestions that you have Anybody you want to hear from uh, Just you send me a line Any topic you want me to talk on you know, I'm, I'm here to, to help and and learn myself. That's the the point of the podcast is to have conversation with those that can teach us something and hopefully bring value to us and our running and our lives. So once again, take care, love to all, and we'll talk to you next week.